Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 8th, 2018. That just seems kind of weird to be saying that, but it is 2018. And this is episode 2140 of the Survival Podcast. You know, recently we've been doing the sale on MSB, and it's really not about MSB, just just time, you know. And a couple people have decided that pay by cryptocurrency to go ahead and pay for two years, and you set up their account, and their expiration date is 2020. It just seems weird to me that we're that close to the year 2020. Maybe it has significance because it's double 20s, maybe because it's a you know, perfect vision, maybe because it used to be a show, it's just a, a thing, but it just seems to be like... Was it just yesterday I was sitting in study hall trying to get the courage up to ask a girl out and it was 1986? I mean, that's just sometimes how I feel. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? We're not going to talk about high school nostalgia, that's for sure. We've got a bunch of great stuff for you. Um, I got a little segment on gun adapters and gunadapters.com and what they are. And they're now a member of the MSB. That announcement went out today. You can get a discount on gunadapters.com adapters. I have a, not a question from the audience like most of the stuff today, but a, uh, a new recipe for you I thought I'd share for acorn squash soup. Uh, made it down the second time, a little bit different the second time. I'll give you both ways. It's pretty awesome. And I know acorn squash is one of those squashes that are, um, well, really easy to grow. Really easy to grow. Very, very prolific. You get a lot of it. Stores a long time, but not something people are usually like, yay, hey, corn squash, I can't wait. You know, I mean, they're okay stuff and stuff like that, but it's just not, oh, this, guys, wow, you'll be growing the hell out of it. You'll go out and buy one, you'll make this, and next, you know, next spring when you're, or this spring when you're planting, there'll be acorn squashes growing in every crevice, you have space to put them. Um, a question on sizing bell siphons relative to grow bed size for an aquaponic system. And another aquaponics system on getting good bacteria into a new system. It's really not that hard. A casting call for those living off-grid via Gary Collins of Primal Power Method. Uh, managing all your passwords securely. little uh, technological prepping question there. Uh, one more time. Why I hate, more accurately, loathe whole life insurance. Just can't stand it. Uh, question on how Ethereum benefits... Uh, from altcoins that are spun off of it. Does it really help Ethereum when they do well? Uh, and how? Uh, what to do with stock dividends inside an IRA? A little financial prep question. A question on drip irrigation, soaker hoses, hard water. And uh, why the TSP method of prepping works for someone almost every day. It'll be a great show with a lot of cool stuff. And we'll be getting into all of that in just a minute. But before we do, let's hear from our two TSP sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, the TSP Business Directory. Do you know that there is a place on the Survival Podcast website where you can find businesses that are right in this community and do business inside the community? It's at a website called tspbiz.com. It's really just a page at the survivalpodcast.com, but you can shortcut there. TSPBIZ.com get you over to the directory and you can see all of the great companies that have spun up out of this community and how you can do business with them. If you'd like to be listed there, you can get your business listed as for little as $5 every six months. It's about the cheapest advertising you can get. And of course, since you're advertising with us, you help support the show. 
Five bucks every six months to get in our directory. It's a pretty good deal. Next, we have HarvestEating.com, the illustrious Chef Keith Snow. Uh, Chef Keith has some really great stuff. He's got great courses on how to cook. He's got his new paleo beef course. Uh, he's got great seasonings and stuff like that in his store. He's got a great podcast, a great YouTube channel. His website is just awesome. Again, it is HarvestEating.com, HarvestEating.com. And we are really great, uh, grateful that we have Chef Keith Snow, not just part of our community as, as a business member and advertiser, but also a member of our expert council. Remember, if you have questions for Chef Keith, you can get them into me for the expert council shows. Just make sure when you send them in for the council, TSPC expert is in the subject line. But check out his website today if you haven't in a while, HarvestEating.com. Dot com. Before we get into all your stuff today, let's take a look at the year 87 in our walk through history and your year in history segment from David Verne. We're at the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com. Year 87. With the disaster of the following year, Titus Julianus, which was, remember, that Roman legion just getting wiped out in a war they should have never got themselves into, right? With the disaster of the following year, Titus Julianus is an experienced commander, has been placed in command of the Roman army in Moesia. Throughout the year, he launches raids across the border, but spends most of his time preparing for a major campaign next year. While Julianus deals with local concerns, Domitian argues with the officer corps on an overall policy. Domitian took Augustus' advice for future emperors not to expand the empire and focus on defense seriously, while the officers viewed this as cowardice. He was forced to agree to an aggressive stance for the Dacian War because of the need to avenge the humiliation of losing a legion and the Praetorian Guard standard, my take by David Verne. Augustus was able to convince the military to stay on defensive stance because he had won many victories and thus had won their respect. Domitian had only won sham victories against a surprised Roman ally and a raiding force. The rank-and-file soldiers loved Domitian because of substantial pay raises he had given them, but the officer corps saw an aggressive stance as necessary stance to de destroy potential enemies while they were weak. The officers were disgusted that Domitian, who they saw as an ignorant civilian, was more concerned with roads and watchtowers than actually fighting. Uh, this is one of those places where you kind of side with Domitian, don't you? Like, see, this is the problem with people that see a military empire is, is the way to run an empire. There's a point at which you expand an empire to a certain size, and as it gets bigger, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That's why the U.S. has gone into, like, what I would call neocolonialism. Because we understand empire is just not going to work anymore. You have to basically leave people alone and use soft power and leverage against them and then bomb them every once in a while. Or in this time, you know, time and place, you might actually send somebody to wipe out a small segment of them. That's how Rome kind of got to this point of equilibrium and it, 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 it kind of worked. But now we gotta go get them. We gotta go get them. Hey, they wiped out one of our legions. They took one of our standards. Hey, we gotta go get them. We gotta get back at them. What do we call that, folks? We call it revenge. Do you know the old proverb? Before you see, start out on a journey of revenge, dig how many graves? Two. Two. Not one. Not one just for your enemy. One for yourself as well. As we will see, sooner or later, that's where this path leads. If only common sense could prevail, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a giant country, With a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of military and a whole bunch of quest for power. And history doesn't change, but it always rhymes, guys. It always rhymes. You're 87 at tspwiki.com. 
With that, let me remind you, this is your last day to get the MSB for 30 bucks. 30 bucks a year for as long as you maintain your account. It locks that rate in for life, which is a huge discount off the normal rate of 50 bucks that people pay all the time. It's a 40% discount. Um, discount code is 2018. Pretty easy to remember since we're in 2018. 2018-2018. We'll get you MSB for 30 bucks paying online. I wanted to, uh, to kind of update one thing about paying online. I have just had my fill with PayPal. And I still have them as a payment method, but you have to use a credit card to pay through them. Um, I have lost thousands of dollars over the last two years trying to work with PayPal to fix the problem. And the problem is that people are members. Everything's okay in their PayPal account. Everything's okay in my account. They come up for renewal, and they fail to renew. They, it just doesn't work. And then sometimes they try to manually renew, and it they won't go through PayPal. I've had people tell me they've called me and said, I called PayPal and told them I'm trying to pay you, and it won't let me. And I've been told, well, you should just use another payment method. I'm sorry. I pay these assholes thousands of dollars a year in merchant fees. So I'm done taking direct PayPal. If you're already on that, you can stay on that as long as it works. But on new signups and manual renewals and things like that, you have to pay with a credit card. I say if you like your PayPal account, and I do, I'm not getting rid of PayPal as a thing, uh, do what I do. Get the PayPal credit or debit card, the PayPal debit card that you can run as a credit card, and use that link to your PayPal account for anything you do online where you need a credit card. And I'll tell you the other thing to do. when you If you have PayPal and you use PayPal for, you know, basically payment stuff, and you use their credit card, all you have to do is go log into your account. I don't remember what screen it's in, but there's a little box you tick under your, your credit debit card. And if you tick that box, every time you use that card as a credit card, you get 1% cash back, even though it's actually a debit card. Now, if you use it as a debit card, meaning you go to the store, you put your PIN in, you don't get 1% because they don't get the fee for, for it being run as a, as, a, as a standard credit card. So you'll want to always take the option of paying with credit with your PayPal card, but 1% cash back, and it's not really a credit card because it's drawn off your existing balance. So anyway, that's why I don't take PayPal directly anymore. Now, good segue into an announcement. Um, Gunadapters.com, been you know, kind of knocking on their door for over a month now, and I finally heard back from them, and then it, it went from, like, they won't even talk to me to here you go. You can, have, you can have the discounts that you're looking for. Here they are. Here's the codes. Just take them and go nuts with it. And I think they were busy and tied up at the end of the year or something like that. I picked up a bad time to try to get in touch. But um, here's the deal. Uh, I put out an announcement today. There will be a link in today's show notes where you can find it. But I got everybody a discount for the month of January on a one-time basis for 15% off of gun adapters. And uh, that, that discount code, pretty easy to remember, but it is, again, in the announcement. But that code is TSP15. And that's everybody and anybody in the month of January can can place an order at gunadapters.com and get a discount of 15%. MSB, but here's the thing. Okay, so that's a one-time use for January. That's for everybody. MSB, any order under $100, you have your own discount code. It's already in your MSB in the benefits section, and it's 15% off all orders under $100. But you can use it as many times as you want and whenever you want. It's not limited. However, this is the sweet deal, because I think most of you would probably buy enough stuff to spend 100 bucks with them. If you spend 100 bucks or more, you get 20% off. So if you bought $200 worth of gun adapters, you get 40 bucks off. And again, MSB's on sale right now for 30 bucks. Just kind of a aside there. But let's talk about these things, what they are, and why you'd want them. 
So what gun adapters are, now, my understanding is they'll actually work in, in most shotguns, but they're made to go in break-action shotguns. Think doubles and single-barrel shotguns, right, that you break open. And what they allow you to do is, let's say that you have your 12-gauge out, but you have a, a bunch of 20-gauge shells sitting around, you want to shoot 20-gauge out of it. Well, you drop in your 12-to-20-gauge adapter, and then you throw your 20-gauge shell on the adapter, close the gun, bang, you can fire 20-gauge out of a 12-gauge. And the funny thing is, and I've done this with the sub-gauge adapters, these things, those have been around forever, you get pretty damn good patterns out of them. I mean, even a 410 pattern's pretty decent out of a 12-gauge. It's crazy, but it does. Um, I'm not sure how or why, but they do. Um, so you can, you can shoot different gauges. And, and about the only one you can't get is there's no 12 to 16 gauge, and the reason is the adapter wall would be too thin. There's not enough difference there to make a, a safe adapter. So you can take 12 gauge and you can shoot 20 gauge, 28 gauge, or 410 out of it, just as one example. But you could also do something like get an adapter that lets you shoot 22 long rifles out of a 12 gauge or 20 gauge or 410 shotgun. Or how about 38 Special? Or how about 45 Colt? Or 380 APC? Or 9mm? You kind of get, like, almost every common handgun caliber out there can be shot through some form thereof of these adapters. They even have them for 17 HMR. And, I mean, I think the utility there is obvious. You have one gun and a couple of these little adapters that you can carry with you, and you have a lot more versatility and ammo that you can use. And, hell, they're just fun, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, how accurate are they? And, it, well, it depends. The less money you spend, the, the, uh, the simpler the adapter. So they have smoothbore adapters that are simply like a 3-inch adapter. You drop that thing into your, uh, your, your 12-gauge or 20-gauge or 410 shotgun and maybe throw a 38 Special in it if that's what it's made for. You fire that 38 Special, it's coming out smoothbore. It's, it's, it is what it is, and it's three inches long. But they also make adapters that have rifling in them, just like a rifle barrel. And they come in three, five, and eight inches. The longer, probably the more accurate, and certainly the higher velocity you're going to get on that round, so the better range. But the bigger and heavier and bulkier it is. So obviously a rifle three-inch adapter, two or three of those in a pack would take up less space than you know, two or three eight-inch adapters. But they have them all different sizes. They even have one that will let you basically turn your shotgun into a 209, in, uh, 209 muzzle loader. And they have a reloadable shot shell. I don't know how many people would really need it, but what it's really meant to do is, is for Damascus uh, twist steel shotguns. But it would be a good little thing. You could always hand load a single shell. They sell all the stuff with it to reload it like 40 times. And then they're off the shelf. It's, you know, waddings and stuff like that. It's just cool. They have a couple kits that I think are really awesome and, and really fairly priced. They have one called a stack and pack kit for 12 gauge. Now you understand that since you have a, a 20 gauge adapter, that it basically becomes a 20-gauge chamber. So another adapter designed to go on a 20-gauge shotgun could fit in the 20-gauge adapter. So what they did is they put together a series of adapters that all fit inside each other. So what you get is a, with the stack and pack kit, you get a 20-gauge adapter for your 12-gauge. Now you shoot 12-gauge or 20-gauge. You get a 410 adapter that goes inside the 20-gauge. So now you put both adapters in there, and you can shoot 12-gauge, 20-gauge, and 410 bore. But the 410 adapter also lets you shoot 45 Colt. So now it'll shoot 20 gauge, 
410, 12-gauge, 45 Colt. And then they give you a 410 to 22 long rifle adapter that goes inside the, the, the 410 bore adapter. And now you can drop 22 long rifle in there. Now, what makes that cool isn't just that you can shoot all those different things, but since they all stack together, they'll fit in a kit about the size of a, uh, like a, like a big old, old fashioned film container, if you can think of it that way. They all fit inside each other, so it's like carrying one, but you're carrying all these different ones. Not to mention if you had a, uh, a 410 shotgun, for instance, you could still take that and shoot 22s out of your 410 shotgun. Right, or if you had a 20 gauge, you could just take the 410 adapter and it's not like they have to stay together. They, they just worked out that way, so they put them in a kit. How much is all that? 60 bucks, and with your discount, 51 dollars. Pretty cool. I mean, I, I think people are going to be going out now that they know about these and buying like finding an old single shot shotgun if they don't own one just to to have it. Uh, next, they have these things called scavenger kits. These are also, now those are smooth bore, right? So, of course, most of it's shotgun. But these are available for 12, 16, and 20 gauge shotguns, and we'll let any of them fire the following. So, you buy one kit, and your 12, 16, or 20 gauge can fire 410, 45 Colt, 22 long rifle, Winchester Magnum rimfire, 9mm, 40 Smith and Wesson, 38 Special, and 380 ACP. They also have a kit for the 410 just like that, but it doesn't include the 410 adapter, obviously, but it'll shoot everything else. Now, how awesome is that? Those kits range from $120 to $150, but if you're an MSB member with that 20% discount, it'll be $100 to $120, depending on which one you want. And, and those, again, those are your lower-cost kits, and they're smoothbore, or you're doing shotgun to shotgun, so, of course, it would be smoothbore. But they also have rifled adapters, And they have a 3-inch Zombie series, a 5-inch Bug Out series, and an 8-inch Pathfinder series. I guess like their, their full Monty is you could do a pick 6 of any of the rifled adapters and pick 6 rifle cartridges. And like the 8-inch, obviously the most expensive. Well, if you pick 6 8-inch adapters and that kit's $450, bucks, but you'd be able to shoot all those rifle calibers with some, some degree of accuracy. Um, and it would be $450, bucks, but my discount, I got you guys to knock it down to $360, save you $90. Bucks. Three times of the membership. So I got you good deals on this. Look about the practicality here. I think a lot of people, how accurate could they be? Well, again, the rifled ones, if you watch YouTube videos, they're very accurate and very repeatable. Now, will it, will it hit your point of aim with your shotgun? Not really. You're going to have to use some Kentucky windage most likely and start, where do I hold when I'm shooting 38 special out of this thing? Where do I hold when I'm shooting 22 long rifle? But that's, That's part and parcel to that kind of old-school mentality of doing things with a single-shot or a double-barrel shotgun. Um, but I've seen people that have taken shotguns and put sights on the ventilated ribs of them and zeroed those for their rifle adapters, and then you, when you shoot it as a shotgun, you just use the barrel plane like you always do, and those have been surprisingly accurate. I was watching one guy knocking off shaving, can, uh, shaving cream cans at 50 yards. Uh, I watched another guy drop the 17 HMR adapter, a quarter size group at 50 yards out of a shotgun. I mean, it's, so, so that's cool. Now, here's another thing I think that maybe a lot of people wouldn't think about of the versatility. Being able to take something like a 22 long rifle, take that old, cheap-ass off-the-shelf, used 20-gauge, you know, like a Stevens or something you find for a couple hundred bucks in a, in a pawn shop or at a gun show, clean it up, make it look nice, get a 22 long rifle adapter, stick it in one barrel. 
squirrel hunting anybody. You got that long shot for that .22, and you got your regular. So now you've got basically a combination gun. Lots of stuff you can do. It's almost mind-boggling. I am so stoked about bringing these guys on for you. If you look up Dave uh, Canterbury, you might notice the one that's called the Pathfinder series, and that's Dave's deal. Uh, he's done a lot of work with them. He's got a ton of videos on them. There's tons of people with great videos on these things. I really think they can add to your versatility. Uh, and again, just something like you know one of the scavenger kits or the stacking pack. A stacking pack gets 50 bucks with a discount. Uh, being able to take that 12 gauge and be able to fire 20, 410, .45 Colt, 22 long rifle for 50 bucks. I mean, there's not a lot of things out there for that kind of money that can give you that kind of flexibility. So I'm glad to have them, and I wanted you to know about them one way or another. Next up, let's talk about my new soup. I know it's the survival. What are we talking about soup? Well, because we grow a lot of stuff. And as I was saying, acorn squash. Man, you talk about a squash that is easy to grow and prolific as all get out. Um, it's acorn squash. That's why it's also cheap if you want to buy. Maybe for an organic product, acorn squash is one of the cheapest things you can buy. And when you eat it, you're like, well, I, I understand now. Because it's not, it's kind of a buttery taste to it. It's not bad. It's not real sweet. And that's, it's low in carbs uh, for a squash. Um, but it just isn't anything that people are like, yeah, acorn squash tonight, man. Yeah, I cannot wait. But when I tell you this soup, it turns it into that. And again, it stores really well. So this is a great, this is a great crop to grow. Stores well long term with no special store. I mean, you can set this on a shelf and it will store well. Um, and it grows well. And it's, it's squash goat. It's fairly pest resistant. If you, I'm not going to say it's, it's pest immune because sooner or later the bugs or borers will get to you with it. But it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty hardy individual, uh, to grow. So here's what happened. I was watching uh, Guy, Guy Fieri, and he did an acorn squash soup. And I was like, really? And I don't even remember how he did it. I just thought, well, we do a, a butternut squash soup. And I could kind of play on that. And we're in a very low-carb mode right now, my, the wife and I, um, at the beginning of this year. And so I wanted to kind of keep the carbs down. So I, I changed it up a little bit. But here is the two different ways I made it. One had more carbs and one has less. So what you do is you cut your acorn squash in half and you, you get all your goop out of it. Your seed, save the seeds because there's no real hybrids or anything there. You can plant the seeds out of the ones in the store if you want to and get more of them. So you take the seeds out or you can roast them and eat them. You take that out and you hit them with some olive oil. Take one, one squash and one apple. You can do more apple for more apple goodness, but that's going to jack your carbs up. So I kept it to one apple so far. Peel that apple and cut, you know, cut it off the core and, and, and coat the apple in olive oil. On the, on the apple and the squash, on the flesh of the squash, put thyme, pretty good sprinkling thyme, a light sprinkling of rosemary, less rosemary because it's very strong, salt and pepper, throw it in the oven. Roast it until the apple's brown and until the squash you can scoop it out where it's nice and easy to scoop out and it's browned up a little bit. I found the apple needs to come out first. I'm doing my roasting at 425 on a convection roast. Uh, which does it pretty quick. If you want to do it 350, it doesn't matter. Just keep an eye on it. And when you take a fork and it easily goes into the squash, the squash is done. And remember, brown is flavor. So now we've got the squash roasted. We've got the apples roasted. We got them out of the oven. They're sitting aside. We're going to get, while that's all going on, fry yourself up as many as you want, from six to 12 to more slices of bacon. 
Oh, yeah, it just got good, didn't it? Right? You're like, wait a minute, bacon in a squash soup? You damn well right bacon in a squash soup. Apple, squash, yeah, you bet. Right, so fry your bacon up. Don't fry it real, real crisp because it's going to be going into a soup. But fry it up decent, slice in little pieces, set it to drain, set it aside. Take your bacon grease, strain it into your, your soup pot that you're going to make your soup in, and cut up one onion. It can be a rough chop because you're going to saute it. Throw the onion in there and start cooking the onion down till it's translucent. When the onion's about cooked as you're going to need it to be, mash up two, or two to four cloves of garlic, depending on how big they are, and throw them in there. They ain't got to be chopped up because it's all going to get chopped up in the end. All right. So then we'll saute that down a little bit more. Then we add six cups of chicken stock. Six cups. I did six cups of water and six teaspoons of better than bullion chicken, but six cups of chicken stock. Scrape your squash out, throw it in, throw your apple in there. Do not put your bacon in yet, okay? Bring it up to a simmer. Let it simmer for a while. And the other thing we're going to do, depending on which, which one of these you want to do, if you're not worried about carbs at all and it's still pretty low carb, put in about a cup of chopped chestnuts while you're simmering it. If you are worried about your carbs, you want to go much lower on carbs, one cup of hazelnuts. I've made it both ways. It's fantastic both ways. When I did the hazelnuts, I got raw hazelnuts from the grocery store. I threw a cup of hazelnuts into a cast iron skillet, and I spun, moved them. Actually, I used a carbon skillet so I could hand toss them and tossed them around until they got nice and warm and began to have a smell, so I roasted them a little bit. And then throw those in there, so the chestnuts or the hazelnuts, not both. Let it cool down a bit, and then you can use a blender. You can even use an immersion blender, but a Vitamix is best for this. Put it into a Vitamix. You probably have to do that in two batches. And run it through the Vitamix till you've just completely annihilated everything, till it's just a creamy-like soup substance. Put it back into the pot. Now, bring it up to a simmer and add your bacon and simmer your bacon until your bacon starts to break down just a little bit. This stuff is fantastic. With the chestnuts, it's very... I actually prefer the chestnuts to the, to the flavor. It's very earthy. It th and I, I wanted the nuts as a thickener without using some sort of a, a flour or something like that. And it, 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 it would, it, both of these soups would make a good sauce. I mean, that's how awesome they are. So the chestnut has like this earthy flavor. The hazelnuts have almost a little bit of this nut butter component going on in the background. And you could increase or decrease those uh, to your liking. But about a cup of either. Uh, and I use the pre, when I did chestnuts, I use the pre-cooked stuff that's, I'll put a link in the show notes, it's like a three and a half ounce package. It's about a cup. And I'll put a link in the show notes where you can get those. And hazelnuts you can get anywhere. Man, this stuff's good. Holy crap, this stuff's good. And last night we did the, the hazelnut version, and I went out to my aquaponics system, and I have some microgreens going out there, and I, I brought in a, a big bag of sunflower and daikon microgreens. And we just took a big handful of those, threw it on there, salt and pepper to taste. It was good enough that we just ate it for breakfast. Yeah, we ate it for dinner. <laughs> we ate squash soup for breakfast. So that's a fantastic thing you can add uh, to your kitchen, uh, acorn squash soup. And I, I actually believe it would work well with most squashes. We make butternut, and butternut's orange and it's sweeter. Um, I think I like this better. This is, I don't know how much I'd like it when it's 100 degrees in June. But this time of year, man, I mean, and, and here's the, the coup de gras on it. When you put it in the bowl, 
you know, and you, like I said, we threw microgreens on it. You can do that or not. You can put some cilantro on it. You can put, you know, a little bit of uh, sprouts on it or some arugula would be nice straight on the top. Before you do that, take some heavy cream and just lay a little bit down on top of it, or maybe an ounce. And don't mix it right away. Kind of just like pour it through the center and then put your greens on it. Serve it that way. And as you're eating it, the the, the cream, it's it's awesome. You can give it a try. And uh, you can thank me later. So let's move off cooking. Covered cooking and gun stuff today. Let's let's talk about aquaponics a bit. So here's the question on aquaponics. Uh, Jack, how do you size a bell siphon, inner pipe and bell pipe size? I'm building uh, the same 300-gallon stock tank aquaponics system you are, but I framed out a 6-foot by 3-foot wood box with pond liner. What size bell siphon should I use? I was planning to use a three-quarter inch inner pipe with a two-inch bell. What are your thoughts on uniseals? The bulkhead I had originally purchased would not fit a two-inch PVC pipe. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, Jesse, first of all, I don't... You, to make sure that we're on the same page. The size of your bell, your bell for your bell siphon, which is the outer pipe with the holes in it that causes the system to work and determines how where the level will break at, You do not need a bulkhead for that. You have a stand-up pipe that attaches to a bulkhead or a uniseal, and you have a bell that goes over it and it just sits on it. So I don't know if there's a disconnect, or you simply wanted to use a bigger pipe, okay? But the your bell has nothing to do at all, infinity, with anything to do with a bulkhead or a uniseal, right? Next thing, uniseals. I don't really like uniseals, especially for a stand-up pipe for a siphon. For a like a connection, like if you have an IBC and you're going to have a second IBC and you want them connected together and there's a cross pipe or something or coming out of like a, um, what, what am I looking for, a, a, um, like your, a solid separator, okay, they're all right. I'm okay with them. I understand they save money in the long run because they cost less. But to me, your bell siphon is something that sooner or later you're going to work on. And I just think because of how a uniseal works, um, that you're more likely over time to have failures. And bulkheads are extremely easy to reuse. And I think for your stand-up pipe in a wicking bed in a setting the level in a deep water bed or for an ebb and flow, you are better off with a bulkhead because we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of six to twelve dollars, depending on the size of the bulkhead. And unless you're going to be building a system where there's you know dozens of these, uh, even a half a dozen of them, it's not that much money compared to the system. I think you're better off. And I, I, I prefer Banjo as my brand of bulkhead. And if you've seen my stuff on bulkheads, one of my big things is a bulkhead should have reverse threads. So that when you're dealing with anything else with it, you don't loosen it up by accident, right? So when you're screwing in a uh, PVC adapter so a pipe can go into it, uh, when you're when you're tightening, you're not going to turn the bulkhead, all right? So that's and, and end up loosening it when you're when you're pulling one out or something like that. So reverse threads on your bulkhead, B A N J O banjo bulkheads or what I recommend. Sizing the pipe, um, you. Probably won't have a problem with a two, uh, a three quarter inch pipe. Most of my 50 gallon ebb and flow beds are being run with a one inch pipe and a two inch bell. So you got a two inch bell that goes over a one inch pipe. They work 
really good. And we decided to go with one inch on a 50-gallon stock tank because you're moving about 25 to 30 gallons of water because you have a displacement from the media, right? And, and you want to make sure that you can get all that water out of there quickly when that cycle starts uh, and, and so that it, it gets down to the bottom quickly and it can break. Because, I mean, that's the, 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 the place that's always the spot you have to fiddle with the most is getting a siphon to break. It's easy to get them to start. You just keep turning your, your, your velocity of water in up until it kicks over. And there's some things you can do with, like, adding length to your pipe, putting an elbow on it, putting a reducer on the stand-up. There's all kinds of little fiddly things you can do to make it start a little easier. But in the end, it's pretty easy to get them to start. Getting them to break, you, you do the exact opposite. You back down your pressure and your flow of water. But if you back it down too far to get it to break, then it won't start. So you have that balance you're always fighting. So the, the faster your dump, the quicker we move that water out of there, the more reliable our break's going to be. That said, when I did the 300-gallon tank uh, setup that's indoors right now that I'm using for all the educational stuff on YouTube, I had a three-quarter-inch banjo bulkhead sitting right there looking at me from another project. I did not have a one-inch bulkhead available to me, and I would have had to go to Tractor Supply in the cold, rainy, misty, freezing shit. And I thought to myself, self... If you stick that in there and it works, you're good. If it doesn't work, you can drill the hole bigger and put a bigger one in. So I shoved it in there and I tested it before, very important, before adding the media. Because that's when it's a pain in the ass, after you've added the media to change things. It worked fine, so I threw them and it's worked flawlessly. It's one of the best working ebb and flow beds I've ever made. So three quarter inch on 50 gallons, it should work pretty good. However... You have a six-foot by three-foot box, and I emailed Jesse back and said, how deep is it? He said 11 inches. If we look at it that way, we can calculate our water volume, uh, and we're going to end up with a water volume of about 120 gallons of potential water. But when we, again, figure, you know, you put a bulkhead through, and that, that bell sits on it, you, and you have a break point in the bell, you never get all the water out. You probably leave an inch of water in the bottom. And you never want to fill all the way to the top. You fill like an inch, two inches from the top, your media goes to the top, you plant down into the media, and that way you never have water sitting on the surface, you don't get algae. So, you know, it's probably not 120 gallons of water. Even if we didn't have media in there, we're still probably going to get 100 gallons. And then the media is going to take up somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50%. So we're looking at like 60, 50 to 60 gallons of water per cycle that need to come out of this thing. So what we can do is, is, is look up the maximum flow rate of a piece of pipe. And one of the important things to understand when you're sizing your projects is that pipe volume is not linear, it's exponential. And what I mean by that is you would think that a 2-inch pipe um, is double the capacity of a one-inch pipe. You would be wrong. Uh, the gallons per minute maximum, if you're shoving as much as you can get through there with as much pressure as you can get, through a one-inch pipe is about 16 gallons a minute. Uh, the maximum gallons through a two-inch pipe is 55, which is, which is more than four times. From one-inch to two-inch, you increase the volume of water flow more than four times. Hence, when we go from a three-quarter-inch pipe to, let's say, a one-and-a-quarter-inch pipe, we have a pretty big increase. So if we were worried about that volume and we want to jack it up, we can get 11 gallons a minute again through a three-quarter-inch pipe, and we can get about 25 gallons through a one-and-a-quarter. Now, understand, on a bell siphon, 
we're not going to get that much. We have a lot of pressure when that siphon triggers, but we don't have the maximum amount of pressure that we can put through that pipe. Let's assume we can get even 60%, let's say 50% to make the math easy. And that would mean that in a one and a quarter inch pipe, we would be able to move about, uh, what would it be, 12 and a half gallons a minute of water. And I can tell you from, from playing with siphons, it's more than that. It's more than half. So what we can do then is we can say, well, you have about 50 gallons. And if we did a one inch pipe, you probably are going to move somewhere around 10 gallons a minute. So it would take five minutes for that cycle to run with a one inch pipe. And it might actually run a little faster than that. Is that fast enough? Probably so. But I would probably step up to a one inch to a one and a half inch stand up pipe. If I went to one, I'm sorry, one inch to one and a quarter, I'd probably buy a bulkhead is what I'm saying and go up a bit. If I went up to like a pipe that's maybe one and a quarter, I would probably increase my bell to a three inch bell from, uh, and then probably you're looking at going a little bit bigger, um, No, no, I think a three inch would fit just fine inside of a four inch media excluding pipe. But uh, you might look at going. I think seriously though, one inch it would probably be just fine there. Um, again, I've run three quarters in a 50 gallon tank, and it it seems to be good. Now, here's what I would actually say to do: you have the three quarter inch bulkhead. Set it up put three-quarter inch pipe in it and run it empty and see if it'll run. See what the discharge rate is. While it's discharging, stick a bucket, a one-gallon bucket under it and time how long it takes to find out what your discharge rate is. As you get toward the bottom and your flow slows down, do it again. See what the time of cycle is and see if you get a clean break. If you get a clean break, it'll work with three-quarter, but test it since you already have it. If you were going out and buy, I would say at least one inch. And one-inch pipe, two-inch bell siphon, I know that works. One-inch pipe, two-inch bell siphon, four-inch media excluder, that's what's on the majority of my beds. And it, it works flawlessly. Better than just about everything else we do. Uh, so there you go. Um, that's kind of the, the, the way to think about it. But I'm back to with aquaponics. People get so wrapped up in how, you know, well, what about this and what about that and what if this and what if... Listen, I'm back to what my shop teacher, Mr. Fox, taught me in ninth grade when we were debating 308 and 3006. And I was a 3006 fan. And I was like, well, if you do this and if the, you know, we're doing a 220 grain bullet, we use H414 powder. And I was like this ballistics geek when I was 14 years old. And he, he's like, Spirico, come here. And he pulls me aside because, like, you don't know what other kids you can say this in front of without, you know, causing trouble. So he's like, come here. Let me, let me tell you something. So he makes sure nobody's listening that shouldn't be. And he's like, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Meaning, like, don't worry about what if. Just go with it, man. And I've always remembered He was a good teacher, obviously, because I'm telling a story he told me uh, this far into the future. So that's your aquaponics thing. Next question I have is basically, how do we get good new bacteria into a brand new aquaponic system? We set up our aquaponic system. We're on a well. We just throw well water in there. We're good. Or we get water out of the city system, and we dechlorinate it, and we have our media and all our stuff. And now we have to have bacteria to break down the nitrites, the nitrates, and then the nitrates can be converted for the plants. But we don't have any bacteria. What do we do? All right. Well, honestly, overall, through time, this will take care of itself. And if we put what I call disposable fish in there, 
and we just accept that some of them are going to die, as they produce waste and do what they do, bacteria will show up and colonize. However, that's usually not what I do. With an aquarium or an aquaponic system, I usually seed it. The best way to seed it is just take maybe a gallon or two of water from an existing healthy system and just dump it in there. That's, I mean, that's you right there. You're, you're golden. There is, there are products that you can buy that are just chock full of good bacteria. Uh, the, the one I like best is a, a product called API Quick Start Aquarium Bacteria. Um, and it's like 11 bucks for enough to do like a thousand gallons or something like that. So you can dump a, a jug of that in, uh, as well. But remember this the bacteria have to have something to feed upon to multiply. So unless we add amendments, and I have, like I said, I've done things like add some liquid kelp, add some garret juice before the fish. You can take a pee in it, whatever. Then you start to give the bacteria something to munch on. Get worms into your system. You know, they're going to do their thing and eat and defecate, and that's going to be part of the system. You can put worms right in your ebb and flow beds. I have video where I've taken, you know, a big handful of worms and set them right up on top of a pile of lava rock. And you're like, what the hell are they going to do? And they, down they go and in, and they're happy. Uh, put them in the wicking beds, put them everywhere, you know. Um, but you got to feed them something, and what we feed them is fish poo and pee, urea. So we need to get fish in there at some point, or the bacteria reach a point where they're just kind of like, I'm starving, I don't have anything to do. Uh, so then we have to keep either adding amendments to give them nutrients, or we got to put fish in. My favorite fish, 20-cent goldfish from Petco or PetSmart, feeder goldfish. Throw them in there. Get 50 of them. Dump them in. Half of them die. Whatever. Pull them out, throw them in your wicking beds in the dirt. So their fertilizer, when they stop dying, you're probably in pretty good shape. Or bluegill-type sunfish, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, brim, perch, whatever you want to call them. You know, get the cane pole or the little fishing rod out, number 10 hook, and go down and catch 20 or 30 of them out of the local pond. If it's legal where you are, throw a cast net in or a fish trap, dump them in there. When they die, take them out, throw them in a wicked. Just, if you do that you'll and, and you use a test kit, you'll watch your nitrates and nitrites, you'll watch that cycle, and you'll watch it skyrocket and then level off, right? Or you just watch the fish die and stop dying, and your hardiest fish will live. And if they all die, put them all in your wicking bed, go get some more cheap or free fish, throw them in there, and let them cycle again. It will take care of itself. It is not that complicated. And I don't know, oh, the poor fish. These are fish you would use for bait, I mean, come on. Like, I have empathy for all living creatures. But in the end, like these things, the, the type of fish we're talking about, the, the destination of the average feeder goldfish is to go into somebody's tank and be eaten by another fish. And the little bluegills and perch and stuff that we would get out of a local pond, right? they are forage fish. Bass and trout and things like that eat them every day. So there you go um, on that. Next up... Gary Collins of Primal Power Method is, is working with somebody in the media uh, on some level, I don't know all the details, but with featuring families living off-grid, okay? Um, and, and they're looking for, like, full-on off-grid people. If you want to know more about it and might be interested in being part of it, you can email gary at primalpowermethod.com and put something like off-grid living in the subject line, and he'll know that's what it's about. Tell him you're interested. That's all the details that I have right now. 
Um, I don't really have a big interest in participating in non-reality TV, which is what I think it all is. Though some of the shows are pretty good, and moving toward the off-grid and away from things like Doomsday Preppers, it might be pretty cool. And if you are one of those people and you you know want to be part of it, Again, Gary Collins would be your contact, Gary, at PrimalPowerMethod.com. Uh, next up, I have a question on managing passwords and keeping them secure. Um, I have always used um, RoboForm. I love RoboForm. I've been using it for over 10 years. Uh, it has an extension. It works with uh, Safari. It works with uh, Firefox, and it works with Chrome. Uh, it also works with Internet Explorer if for some reason you've been living under a rock and still use Internet Explorer, whatever the hell they call it now, Edge or whatever the hell it is. Um, but I have generally used it with Firefox. It works great, and RoboForm has an app. It is not free, uh, but I find often when you pay a little bit of money for something, you get a little bit better of a thing. But it has a RoboForm app. And it's on my phone, and that way if I'm somewhere and I don't have my computer with it installed as a browser, I can pull up the app, I can look up any of my online identities, and I can see my passwords, but you have to have a master password to get into it. Make sure you have a good, strong master password, and don't forget it, because it's kind of gone if you forget it. Um, I have also recently started using the Brave browser. Brave is a browser in development. Uh, I first talked to you guys about the Brave browser Uh, when we were talking cryptocurrencies and I talked about basic attention tokens. By the way, I recommended buying basic attention tokens at about 12 to 15 cents, and they're up over 70 cents now. Just saying, okay? But I, I really like the, uh, the Brave browser. Uh, Brandon Icke, I think is his name, is the guy that invented JavaScript. Uh, he's the guy that developed Mozilla and the Firefox browser, and eventually the Social Justice Warriors pushed him out of his own company. So he went out to do other things. He started the Brave browser. I love Brave. It is not completely free of some annoying things yet, though. It doesn't do... It will have occasionally it'll be on a website and you're trying to do something that doesn't work. 99% of the time, it works as good as anything else out there. It doesn't have anywhere near the number of plugins for it, and the RoboForm plugin doesn't work. My understanding is the Brave team is aware of this, and they are going to add support for RoboForm. I don't know if that means they'll have to build their own extension for it or if they're going to get somebody to do it or whatever, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. However, if you use a Mac, the way RoboForm installs on a Mac, you can see your RoboForm data from any browser and use it. If you're on a PC, not so much. Not so much. So what I've been doing is whenever I don't automatically remember a password, I open up Firefox and do hit edit for that page in um, in RoboForm. And then I get that data, and I'm now using a plugin for Brave called Bitwarden. Bitwarden is free. It seems to work very good. Uh, if you have Brave on multiple devices in an account, it will synchronize across all your devices, something always locked about RoboForm, but it's free. And it honestly, in many ways, it works better than RoboForm. Um, Brave also has some autofill features where it starts to learn things like your address and all and will fill uh, forms out for you pretty quickly. It just seems to know sometimes, oh, that's what you're doing, boom, and it fills the form out for you. Uh, I, I have not looked for an extension that will do autofill of forms and things like that and store things like credit card information uh, yet, but I would be. that's one thing like the Bitwarden doesn't do, and I haven't looked at the other password managers uh, for Brave yet, 
But that's something else I loved about um, RoboForm. So with RoboForm, you can set up multiple identities. Like I have Jack Home and Jack Business with a business address, which is our receiver, and a home address. And I can store payment information in there securely as well. So if I'm on a site and I want to pay for something, I can click a button, and it will always warn me, like, you're, 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 fill, you're giving payment information. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes. And it will autofill my credit card information, the expiration date, CV, all that stuff. Now, again, it's only as safe as you make it. So you got to have a good, strong, secure password. But if somebody were to hack into your RoboForm account online, they really wouldn't get anything. They would have to have it installed and have a different there's it's a different login that you have for your action unless you make it the same, which is dumb. Unless you make it the same. So they could they could get into your RoboForm online account instead of the actual feature and and all they would do is be able to I don't know, put their credit card number in. I mean, they can't get your credit card number. They can't get all your law. They can't get any of that shit. It's a, it's a different credential that goes with your actual device. And so, but again, somebody gets your device. If they can get into that, they got all your passwords. So you got to decide whether you want to do that or not. That's what I do. And it works really well. And I think in any situation, you have convenience and risk. And there's a point where convenience and risk meet and the more convenient it gets the less risk adverse it becomes and the more risk protective you get the less convenient it becomes the fact that i can with my phone once when i'm like sitting at the apple store and i can't get logged into apple and i'm pretty sure that's my apple account and i can pull that up and go boom 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 okay yeah that is, oh i forgot that special character all right yeah and then i could get my new phone to get all its data and shit yeah i i think it's worth it Um, again, I haven't tried all of the stuff in Brave yet. If you're using Brave and you have a password manager system you like better than Bitwarden, let me know what it is. I'd, I'd like to take a look at it. Uh, but that's the best one I've found so far. For everybody else, RoboForm, RoboForm. Again, 10-year user, um, and I've uh, been happy to pay for it because it works so damn good. All right, next one I have a question on whole life insurance. And she wants to know, you know, what is my recommendation on whole life? And then somebody always, it doesn't matter how this question comes. It's always, but my situation is different because. Okay, so unless you are a multimillionaire that is strategically using life insurance to hand down um, money to your heirs and circumvent um, inheritance tax, unless that's what you're doing, And it's part of a very large overall strategic financial plan, working with the type of financial advisor that most of the people that listen to this broadcast, including myself, don't even qualify to work with because you're, you're not having a liquid net worth of over $2 million, um, then your answer, it doesn't change anything. And it's, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, I loathe it, I hate it, it's disgusting, don't do it. All right, there is no good in whole life, and I'm going to hear from the the trouble. And it's like a religion, man. The people that really believe in it, like it, it's like a faith, because the, the the math never bears this out. Okay, what you, it, what life insurance is for is not for saving money, but for ensuring your income or your wealth or what you do for others should you depart the planet. That's what life insurance is for. If somebody shoots you in the freaking head, 
that the people you leave behind that depended on you have something in the form of finance to try to replace some of what you did for them. And as soon as you go beyond that, there are better choices always. There are better returns always. There is never a case where this is the best tool, except for the one I gave you. Extremely high net worth individuals making strategic choices with one segment of their finances to circumvent inheritance tax for their heirs. If you don't have more than $3 million to bequeath in inheritance, there is no reason to even worry about that. So shut up about it, stop it, it's evil, and it's dumb. Term insurance. But what about when it expires? I have term to 90. It's dirt cheap. It's like a hundred something dollars a year for an, I'm not going to say how much, but an ass load of insurance. Yes, I got it when I was young. Why? Because I'm smart. Okay? But if I die, my wife gets that benefit because it's there in case I die. It's not there so I can borrow against it. It's not there so I can pay for college. It's not there so I can one day buy a piece of land. There are better ways to do all of that than life insurance. It is a retarded investment. I'm sorry. And if you're offended, I don't give a shit. And here's how you can you know, work out for yourself that it's retarded. Get a quote, get multiple quotes, and get the cheapest term life insurance for the term you want you can get your hands on. There is no such thing as a life insurance company in business who will not pay your death benefit. If they fail to pay a death benefit, they would be out of business. Okay? It is one of the safest things you can buy. Now, if you do find a company called something like Joe Spooty's Economy Coyote Insured Acme Brand Insurance Agency, I would probably look elsewhere. But in general, a known entity in the insurance industry for life insurance, cheaper is better, period. Figure out what that term is. I wouldn't look at anything less than 30-year term. Unless you're probably going to die and they don't know it. Okay? <laughs> But 30-year term, term to 90, there's decline, all kinds of terms. Find whatever term product seems to be best for you. And remember, when you're 80, you don't need to leave money to your kids in the form of life insurance. You need enough money to go in the ground or get set on fire. That's what you need. Okay? So there's a point at which you don't need life insurance anymore. Then, figure out what a whole life policy for the same death benefit would be. Then take the difference and put it in something stupid like laddered CDs. And look at five years what the cash value of the policy is versus the cash value in your hands are with no restrictions or limitations whatsoever on what you do with it. Let alone if that money were invested into a good quality mutual fund, stock, or other well-performing asset. There is never a case mathematically ever infinity, period, where whole life will win that competition. It doesn't exist. If it did, I would know about it. It's all bullshit. And all the people who are so sure I'm wrong, to the letter, every single freaking one of them sells whole life. And guess what? They get a commission almost equal to the entire first-year premium when you buy it. And most companies, they're looking at a residual for at least 10 years on your whole life policy. Gee, I wonder why they're so convinced that it's a good investment for you. And I'm not even saying they're lying shysters. Most of them aren't. They've been programmed by the company they work to believe the bullshit that comes out of their mouth. But if you take Excel, build a spreadsheet, put the numbers in, 
and you will never even consider this ever again. And if you buy like a $50,000 whole life policy for your infant, you are stupid. You are stupid, 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 stupid. If you buy $50,000 worth of whole life insurance for an infant, do not do this. That's not the way we use life insurance. With that, let's move on to another one. But before we move on to temper that, I'm telling you that people I really cared about in my family did the same type of shit, and at one time, I was a true believer. I was. And then I discovered mathematics, economics, and Excel. So if I just called you stupid and you're angry with me, remember at one time, I was stupid too. But do not, do not, do not be suckered into whole life insurance. It is not a good deal ever, infinity, the end. All right. So now let's, uh, I got another question today and it's not Ethereum. All right. So next up, Johnny says, hoping to get this question answered on the following crypto episode. I'm going to just answer it today. Uh, there's a platform like Ethereum that has coins built on top of it. Does Ethereum really benefit from coins that do well on their platform? Details. Coins being built for the, on the Ethereum platform. EOS, for example. I have to buy, to buy EOS, I have to buy Ether to purchase EOS. Which sounds great for Ether is people have to buy into the platform coin to purchase the spinoff coin on that platform. When I buy Ether, I then convert it to EOS. This does not take any money out of, does this not take any money out of the Ethereum system? A bunch of people buy EOS, EOS price goes up, though the money in EOS was bought through Ethereum, this raises the EOS price, not the Ether, correct? Thanks. I know it's a bit confusing along with everything else in the space. Uh, John from Michigan. Okay. So here's the deal. If a coin is built on the Ethereum platform and that coin goes up in value, it doesn't really do anything directly to affect the Ethereum price. That doesn't mean Ethereum doesn't benefit. There's, there's, there's multiple ways. And we would talk, maybe the price of Ethereum is really more what we're talking about than Ethereum itself. So, When we have these token offerings, these ICOs, etc., that are built on the Ethereum platform, and in general those, when they're initially launched, have to be purchased for Ethereum. So company XYZ comes up with new Save the World product A, and they're going to put it out, they put out their white paper, their Slack page, all that shit, and they announce, hey, we're going to be doing this with Ethereum smart contracts, And if you want to be part of this, you can buy our tokens for one cent worth of Ethereum. We're selling 700 million of them, or you can buy them for three and a half cents of Ethereum, and we're doing uh, uh, 20 million of it, whatever it is, right? They put out their terms. Okay, so then, yes, a, a whole bunch of people that are going to be in that ICO generally go out and grab Ethereum, And buy it off the open market, thereby increasing demand for it and taking possession of it. They then spend it, but they do not trade it. They spend it to, to buy into the new platform. Unlike, let's say, if I were to go out and buy a thousand Ethereum today, hold on to it for a week, and then sell it back into the open exchange. Let's say I was doing this on Bittrex, for instance. Um, that thousand Ethereum just traded back into the market, and therefore it's part of the supply side versus the you know it's, it's the supply and demand at that point. But it's increasing the supply side. The more people that sell, the higher the supply side. The easier it is to fill the demand side. The lower the price. 
the more people that hold versus people that buy, the demand goes up, so the price goes up. That's how all stocks, securities, commodities, law of supply and demand, you can try to get rid of that with socialism. It doesn't work. That's how it works, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. But when I, let's say that the company XYZ comes out with the XYZ token, and I don't know, they raise $100 million, and all of that is raised with Ethereum. A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, some portion of that $100 million worth of Ethereum will actually be locked up as an assurance to investors As part of a smart contract, let's say $20 million worth of that Ethereum is locked up until certain metrics are met. The company promised, we're building this platform to do X, Y, and Z. That's what we call the X, Y, and Z token. So maybe that $20 million doesn't get released until it, 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 it actually is able to do X, Y, and Z. Or maybe it's $50 million tied up, and when it releases X, $10 million can then be used by the company for other things. It unlocks it. You see? And then when they can do Y, then another 10 million gets unlocked. And when they can do Z, the final 30 million worth of Ethereum gets opened up. And the other 50 million goes into a holding of the company that pays developers and things like that. You got it? That's how this works. So the company then takes Ethereum in and holds and uses Ethereum to fund its existence. Now, there's nothing that would stop a company from doing an ICO in Ethereum, taking the money in an Ethereum, not locking any of it up, and immediately selling the Ethereum for U.S. dollars or euros or... They, I mean, you can structure it however you want, but in general, they don't. So every time there's an ICO, not only is there a big buying of Ethereum, generally some portion of that Ethereum gets locked up for some period of time which reduces the supply side and therefore increases the demand side and therefore continues to apply upward pressure on the Ethereum platform, coin. On top of that, every time somebody does it success successfully, the concept of, well, we can fork Bitcoin or we can do an E-225, 230, whatever token, is like, yeah, this, is, this works. Every time one of them is successful, it, it leads to so more use thereof the same. But just because an Ethereum-backed token goes up in price doesn't directly affect Ethereum's pricing. So that's how that works. And that's why it was really brilliant of the way Ethereum came out with this type of a platform and marketed as this is the way forward from a blockchain standpoint. It also obviously continues to fund investment into Ethereum itself because a certain portion you know, being created that it adds value And the people behind Ethereum all have large holdings of it. That's, that's another way to look at it. Um, but it also attracts outsiders who would push money into Ethereum to further fund it. right? So it, it benefits in a, a lot of different ways. All right. So uh, next one is another financial question. Uh, Jack, my question is what to do with a dividend payout on stocks held in an IRA. Details. I have a rollover IRA from my previous employer, and I have found that due to default selection, I have been reinvesting the dividends into stocks I hold in the accounts. What are your thoughts on reinvesting versus withdrawal? Currently, we are only talking $100 a month or so. Um, okay, well, let's start off, Mike, with $100 in dividends a month on stocks is pretty, pretty good right now. 
That's, you know, it's $1,200 a year in, in a return without even factoring in the, the, uh, the stock's upward appreciation in value. So that's a good thing. But let's talk about this concept of withdrawal. There is a, uh, a, a very strong no way possible here to even do that. Um, this is an IRA you rolled over from a previous employer's account. The only way you're getting any money out of this without penalties is if certain criteria have been met and it's a Roth IRA. doesn't say Roth IRA in your email. probably isn't. And the reason is this. You can have a Roth 401k. Most employers simply do not give a shit enough about their employers or things like this to care enough to make sure Roth is an option. Because if you are an employer and you set up with a big company to provide a 401k to your employees and you don't get them an option to do it as a Roth, you have failed your employees and you suck. And most employers suck on this one thing. So you probably have a conventional IRA. Now, on top of that, even if it was a Roth, we can't withdraw interest and dividends tax-free from a Roth. We can withdraw the underlying investment with no interest and penalties because we've already paid tax on it. Most people don't know that. That's another reason a Roth is so good. It's not just that we never pay tax on it. It's that we can get at the underlying principle if we need to. So we could perhaps make a withdrawal annually for the total value of the dividends, but we're actually saying we're taking it out of the originally invested principle, which I don't know. I don't play a lot of games like that. I see, like, if you have a Roth IRA and IRA, those are things, those are retirement vehicles. Money should generally stay in there. The fact that we have an exit strategy for a large portion of the money in a Roth is a good thing if we need to execute it for some reason, like a job loss, and we don't want to go bankrupt. All right? So, generally speaking, we would live it in, leave it in there. The, the question really revolves around, should we be reinvesting these dividends back into the stocks which produce them? And this is what I would say to that. Would you buy those stocks today? If I gave you $1,200 in that account, would you buy those stocks or would you buy something else? And the reality is you probably aren't sure. You wouldn't be asking this question, but that's how you have to frame it. And when you do that, you start looking at the stocks that you're holding a lot more. Because here's my thing. If I would not buy, let's say I have... Uh, $10,000 worth of stock XYZ instead of you know, coin XYZ. And, and somebody said to me, if, if you had $10,000 in cash, would you invest it in this company today? No. Then I'm not holding that stock. Then I'm, I'm, I'm liquidating that stock and I'm buying a stock that I can answer that question with a yes to. Now, these sound like good stocks, though. They really do. If they're producing you know, $1,200 a year in dividends... I don't know how much money you got in this thing, but that's probably pretty decent. So the beauty of dividend reinvestment is it continues to compound the value of the underlying investment. So I think you have to make that decision based, again, on, like, would you buy these stocks today? And if you wouldn't, you might even be looking at trading them, because here's the thing. I could have, I could be holding a stock today that I wouldn't buy today but I will hold it if it's outside of a retirement account because I'm going to have a capital gains component to this. So I might think, for right now, since there's nothing jumping out at me as a superior investment, there's no reason to take the gain on this because I don't think it's going to go down. 
Or I might just say, you know, if I hold this stock for another month, I'm going to go from short-term to long-term on my taxes, so I'll hold it longer. Because I don't think it has any real underlying dangers to it. But if it's in a retirement account where there's no tax on no matter what you do, you can make that decision based on the now with no consequence from a tax standpoint of making and executing a trade. Again, this is why I love Roth IRAs. I think you should contribute to your Roth IRA as much as you can afford to because it is the one place that you can grow money completely tax-free. Yes, you'll pay tax on it before it goes in there, but you will never pay tax on any money that you ever take out of it as long as you follow the rules. So that's why I'm a big fan of that. Um, as far as rollover dividends, in general, I do reinvest my dividends because if I'm holding a stock, I'm holding a stock that I have long-term confidence in, and if I didn't have long-term confidence in I wouldn't be holding it. So getting paid in a dividend is, is really kind of a, a no-brainer at that point. But since I don't know your risk tolerance, your investment strategy, how long you are away from retirement, and what stocks you're holding, I can't tell you what I would do in your situation. Because I might say, shit, get rid of that crap. It did really good and ain't going nowhere anymore. Or I might say, damn, that's a good play. I'm going to copy some. I, I just don't know. All right, let's take another one. Okay, this one comes from Tim. Tim says, soaker hoses or drip irrigation? Details. I have some 4 by 10 foot beds I wanted to set up on automated watering solution. I researched the drip irrigation method. I would need to use a calcium filter, and I would probably use an iron filter due to our crappy well water. I tried to do drip irrigation using PVC pipes with one-eighth inch holes drilled in, and I don't want to do that again. I would definitely go want to go with drip lines this time, but I could also see soaker hoses working just fine. Do you have an opinion on drip lines versus soaker hoses? Would it be a good idea to put a pressure regulator on a soaker hose to allow the water to come out slower so it has a chance to soak in and not run off without trying to fine-tune the water valve? This could be a play-by-ear question because the addition of filters to the line could reduce the pressure to the point the regulator would be useless. Thanks for the, all the damn content, Tim. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to tell you that I have attempted to do drip irrigation with very hard, crappy well water like you're talking about. I have used filters, and I have still found that my drip emitters clog mercilessly. So I'm going to advise you against even bothering with drip irrigation if you have the kind of water I do. The way I would say, if you want to do drip, if you want to do drip, put in a big-ass rain catchment tank and do drip from a rain catchment tank. That Or don't, okay? And you don't, you know, the thing is, if you have a few 4-foot by 10-foot beds, you don't need a huge, I mean, one 1,500-gallon tank would do that in spades, especially in your, you know, you're in the East Coast, you're going to get plenty of rainfall, you, and you don't have to water all the time. It would probably be fine for a vegetable garden. In fact, you could probably do quite a few 10-foot beds with one 1,500-gallon tank on a drip timer. And if you elevate that tank at all, you can probably run them without any kind of additional upgrade to your pressure. If not, a simple SureFlow pump would work. But I would do that before I would jack around with a bunch of filters that are probably going to clog up sooner or later anyway and make you miserable. And by the time you figure out that they're clogging up, your emitters will already be clogged. Soaker hoses. They're cheap. They do work. They do have some issues with hard water eventually making them not work so well. But they're so cheap and they work for so long, they're probably your better play out of the two. Should you get a pressure regulator? Absolutely you should get a pressure regulator for your uh, soaker hoses. And I'm going to tell you why. If you don't, 
they will explode. They will rupture, they will break, they will pop. Period. The end, infinity. And I know what people are thinking. Well, what I'll do, I'll just turn the valve down. All right, I'll just turn the valve down so I don't let as much water through. That will, that will reduce the total amount of water coming out. Over time, though, anything that can build pressure, whatever pressure's on one side of the valve, eventually will be on the other side of the valve, even if you've throttled down the velocity. The pressure will come to a point of equalization, and you will come out and find a big, giant blowout in your soaker hose. This has been my experience anyway, and I would tell you that you would probably be better. And turning down, I, I thought of that, and then when it happened, I went, oh, that's how pressure works. Yeah, that's not going to work. So uh, I would get a pressure regulator and go with soaker hoses. If you want to put some filtration in there, fine. It'll make them certainly last longer. But they don't, in my experience, clog up the way drip emitters do. Drip emitters, I mean, here, it was a matter of days before the drip emitters clogged up. Days. And there was just no fighting it. Truthfully, for four foot by ten foot beds, you're probably better off getting some PVC pipe, put one piece of PVC pipe right up the middle of the bed, bring your pipe up just a couple inches so it's not real high with a spray, and use head sprinklers. The little head sprinklers that they have at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., they're like $0.35, $0.70, cents, something like that. So you got a PVC pipe, you got an ad- a threaded adapter, a slipping thread adapter, and you screw it on, and like your end ones, you get a half pattern, so they only spray from one end in. And you probably, with three of those, a, a one that is designed to not be a 360, but it shoots in two directions, so it shoots uh, 180 degrees, but out of two, so 90 on each side, and they match like a mirror pattern. They have those, and then your half patterns. That would probably do your whole bed. And yes, it's not as good as drip, but it'll work. And when one of them looks like it's getting clogged up, get some of that CLR shit, have a little jar of it, unscrew it from the adapter, throw it in the jar, shake it up, take it out, shake it out, rinse it off, and put it back on. And you'll probably be a lot happier long-term than soaker hoses or drip irrigation. I mean, that's because that's what I did. I mean, And in the end, I went to building wicking beds. And wicking beds, to me, are the smartest water solution there is if, uh, if you're concerned with conserving water and, and getting your, your best uh, use out of things like that. All right, I think we have just one more question for today. Let me check. Yeah, um, this is really not even a question. It's just a little bit of like positive feedback. I guess positive feedback in a negative situation would be the way to put it. This comes from John. John says, Jack, just a little wake-up call for everyone. Times do get tough. I just lost my job this week. This is a few weeks old email, by the way. Uh, people, listen to Jack. Times might be good for you right now. But in the blink of an eye, things can go sideways. My workplace is going through government contract change, and my union has been telling us, oh, your job is safe. It is in, oh, it is in the contract that they have to keep you employed. Well, I guess not. Weeks before Christmas, I find myself unemployed. But thanks to Jack showing the way things are not that bad, could be better, but not bad. Thanks for showing us the path, Jack. John, John, first of all, I wish you well in finding a new job, new career, getting called back, whatever it is that does, whatever's best for you in your life in, in the coming months. 
Um, in general, if you are well prepared, losing a job many times is an opportunity. It causes you to get out on the market and see what's available and find out that there was actually a place I could have moved up with, especially when, well, why were you released? And you have a good answer like a government contract change caused mass layoffs. Right. It's not, well, I was an idiot and didn't come to work and I picked my nose at my desk and they got tired of me flicking boogers on my, uh, my, uh, my cubicle mate, so they fired me. That's, that's not a good way to be without a job. Right. But when you have a legitimate reason that something like this happened, uh, generally doesn't hurt your marketability at all. And if you don't need a job during a time like this and you can get out and be proactive and look for a job with an attitude of, I have a lot of value, you know, for the time being, we haven't had You know, the, the big hit to the economy that I know is coming eventually with all this automation stuff. There is tons of opportunity right now. So get out there and look for it. But what I wanted to share this segment for is there's a lot of people that come to this show that maybe they did see Doomsday Preppers or they went to a, an expo or their friend told them about the Illuminati or whatever. Some, you know, they heard about a flu epidemic or whatever. It's something that freaked them the hell out. And they find some shit like Alex Jones or something like that, and they start digging in more, and I want to be a prepper, and I, I need to learn all this stuff. And they find the show, and they go, well, it's good, but it just doesn't, we're not talking about bunkers, and uh, we're not worried about enough long-term storage for because it has like, just save 30 days to get started and eventually get up to 90, and unless you want more, that's probably good enough. And, you know, have a blackout kit and a, a bug-out plan and a decent little 72-hour kit for every member of the family, and focus on your finances, your economics, and your side hustle, and building a business, and providing your own food and learning to store your own food. Like, all that stuff's great, but is, is it really preparedness? It is for John. Now, isn't it? Debt elimination, living within your means, having a budget, right? Growing your own food, storing enough food to make it three months if you have to. Because now we can cut the food bill in half for 180 days, six months while we look for a new job. And hopefully we have some savings in there. I mean, if you're following my plan and you lost your job, assuming you lost it in a way where you do get unemployment, right, you should probably, after a couple years of following the plan, be able to go a year and not be happy about it, and maybe something that you had saved and you wanted to be part of your retirement or something, maybe some of that had to get liquidated, but you should be okay. You shouldn't be getting thrown out of your house. Now, if you're not there yet, don't beat yourself up. Follow the methodology and you will be. And, and, and the way I put it in the show notes, this is how TSP saves somebody's ass at least once a day. At least once, with the size of the audience we have now, I have no, because you guys know I don't like to make claims I can't back up, and I can't actually prove this, but I have no problem extrapolating this is most likely the case, that at least once a day, somewhere in the world, someone has some shit like this happen. Somebody gets sick, somebody gets in an accident, somebody gets hurt at work, somebody loses a job. Something happens. A family member goes wacko and ends up in the pokey and they have to take off work and then they, something, something happens to at least one person every day who goes, geez, this isn't going to be that bad. A car breaks down. You get in an accident, it totals your vehicle and you, you have to wait for the insurance and you're with, I mean, something like that happens. You, you think everything's fine at home, you come home, you get served with divorce papers. You got a big family and your wife's going after you for everything you have. That's probably one of the worst ones. And in many instances, 
the mentality that you've learned here helps you even through something that bad. That's why we teach what we do. That's why we say helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If we're building the plan for the good time with a hedge against the bad, we make our lives better. And when something like a job loss happens, I'll tell you what I want. This is what I want for all of you out there. This is my goal. If I can get the majority of people in this audience to this point, I will feel that everything I've done has been worthwhile. You go to work, and they say, well, we need to go see HR, and you think, oh, it's a change to some paperwork or something, and they know you're being downsized, outsized, whatever it is. Then at that point, you go like this, huh, shit. And you go clean your desk out and whatever and get your severance package or whatever and call your wife and tell her. And the, like, the first thing you'd want to do is call up an old buddy or two and say, hey, maybe for a drink tonight. I'm celebrating. And when they say, what are you celebrating? I just got canned. They're like, oh, you want to go drink and bury yourself? No, no, I'm serious. And that you, you go out that night and you know don't get yourself into damn DUI because no amount of prep in the world can happen. But you have a beer with a couple old friends. You sit back and you talk about your life a little bit and you relax and you go home and you say, you know what I'm going to do? For the next week, I'm going to be a housewife or house husband. I'm not even going to worry about it for a week. I'm going to put down a few fillers. I'm going to take some time with my family, see this as a gift, and I'm going to put together a plan, and I'm going to go out there and proactively seek the next thing in my life, and I'll know it'll be better than what I had last time because I can afford to be the person that looks for it that way because I'm going to be okay, and I'm just going to take some time to myself and my family and focus on what matters and go forward with optimism. If I can get you there, that you're really prepared. Because if you can't be that prepared and you think you're going to be prepared for the apocalypse, you're just deluding yourself. Anyway, with that, we've come to the end of another episode. I'd like to remind you one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is how. You can do that by doing your online shopping. Where? tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That will show you all of my reviews on Amazon. They're all there. And you can see all the different products reviewed. They're all in categories. Now you can see cooking and, you know, tactical and bags and gear and homesteading stuff and permaculture. You name it, we got it all broken out. And we are kind of doing a lot of cooking stuff at the beginning of the year because I got new recipes and stuff like that. And I'll tell you one thing you got to have in your kitchen or your kitchen sucks. Black pepper. Now, if you're allergic to it or something, I'm sorry. It sucks. But for most of us, like, black pepper is a key ingredient to the kitchen and to all the things that we cook. You're not using cracked black and you're cooking. You're using stupid, you know, pre-ground. No, God, no. No, no. And, I mean, you realize, like, the, the economy that Pepper represented at one time, like the Silk Road and stuff like that, oh, my God, it was, like, one of the most revered uh, commodities in the world. Wars were fought over Pepper, right? And now we can just get it delivered to our house for a couple bucks. Thing is, it's not all the same. The best black pepper in the world is tillicherry black peppercorns. And it's made from this, it's grown in this one little spot in India. It is the best black pepper in the world. And if you buy it in bulk from a company called Spicy World, you'll pay about what you would pay to buy cheap, old, stale peppercorns in a grocery store. It's like 13 bucks a pound. And what I do, I buy it by the pound, I put it in the little jelly jars, Throw the lids on them. I throw them in my little vacuum sealer. Vacuum seal them up. Put them in the pantry. Whenever one's empty, I go get another one. When I'm down to two jars, I order another pound. And, and, and that's the way I do that. This is the best black pepper you will get your hands on. 
Really, really is. Now, there's other kinds. You know, I don't know if you know this, but like pink peppercorns, white peppercorns, green. They're all the same plant. They're just different stages of ripeness. And actually, I do not recommend Spicy World for like the Malangs, like where there are three different color peppercorns and all. But when it, I don't know what it is, man. It's something about their black peppercorns. It is just the best I've found for the price. Value to price ratio, that's what I'm always teaching, right? Spicy World, Teal Sherry Peppers, you can find it on the review today. You can find it in the cooking section at tspaz.com. But remember, it doesn't matter what you buy. If you go to tspaz.com before you shop online and start there, you help support the Survival Podcast and everything that we do. tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is by John Lennon. It's called Nobody Told Me. And uh, it's going to be one of those songs, like, if you think you've never heard it, and as soon as you hear it, be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that song. John Lennon actually wrote this song in 1976, and it was uh, the title at the time. It was called Everybody's Talking, Nobody's Talking. He recorded this song at a session for his 1980 album, Double Fantasy, but decided not to include it on the set, and he gave it to his uh, Beatles bandmate, Ringo Starr, instead. Ringo was going to record the song on his 1981 album, Stop and Smell the Roses, but when Lennon was shot and killed on December 8, 1980, he didn't feel comfortable recording it. Uh, so John Lennon's original recording finally surfaced in 1984 when it was released as a single and included on Milk and Honey, an album comprised of songs recorded during the double fantasy sessions that didn't make the cut. It was a big, uh, big hit, reaching the top ten in both the United States and the United Kingdom after John Lennon had passed away. Um, little kind of trivia thing that's kind of cool in it. The line... There's a UFO, over New, a UFO over New York, and I ain't too surprised, was taken from an actual incident. In 1974, John and his girlfriend, May Pang, which was during his separation from Yoko, were living in an apartment overlooking New York's East River. When John saw what he thought was a UFO, according to Pang, John yelled out the window, Come back and take me with you. Uh, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. What I like about this song is it's actually like so much of, of Lennon's lyrics in his, his solo career so relevant to today. Here's some of the lyrics in it. Everyone's talking and no one says a word. Everyone's making love and no one really cares. There's Nazis in the bathroom just below the stairs. Always something's happening and nothing's going on. There's always something happening cooking and nothing in the pot. They're starving in China, so finish what you got. Nobody told me there'd be days like these. Strange days indeed. Everybody's running. No one makes a move. Everyone's a winner, and no one seems to lose. That reminds you of anything? It says there's a little yellow idol to the north of Kathmandu. Everybody's flying, and no one leaves the ground. What is that little yellow idol in this song? The little yellow idol north of Kathmandu comes from the poem The Green Eye of the Yellow God by J. Milton Hayes. The first stanza says, There's a one-eyed yellow idol to the north of Kathmandu. There's a little marble cross below the town. There's a broken-hearted woman tends the grave of Mad Caro, and the yellow god forever graces down. So that's just John being a well-read individual and working that into his song. But, I mean, kind of the point of this song is people talk all the time, but they don't say much. There's noise all the time, but nobody hears anything. There's always something going on, but most of the time the thing that's going on is just an illusion to keep you distracted from the things that really matter. John Lennon, one of the 
best philosophical songwriters of all time. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.